Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode will cover the film High and Low from Akira Kurosawa in the early 60s. And uh, it's going to be the last episode of the Left of the Movies sub-podcast, where I focus on like a film from a political angle, uh, that will be included on this main Lost in the Movies podcast feed. In October, it's branching off. It's going to become a monthly podcast of its own. Uh, one episode coming out each month on its own dedicated feed. I might create like a Lost in the Movies master feed. I don't think it's just going to be this one. I think it would be like a separate one. I want to keep this one just focused on whatever the main Lost in the Movies podcast is. But there will be multiple feeds springing up this fall. So keep an eye out for that. But for now, I just wanted to continue with this podcast uh, on this feed. So this will be the last time that I do that. On my site, I've been publishing my Mad Men Season 5 Viewing Diary. I'm up to Episode 10 this past Monday. It goes up every Monday. Uh, this episode was Christmas Waltz, which has a great scene between Don and Joan. It's like late, I think, 1966 at this point in the series. I also published on Wednesday, my, or actually on last Friday, my Olympic Series Directory. Uh, all the films that I'm going to discuss, the, the documentaries made about the Olympics over the years, I'm uh, watching the summer ones backwards since the Summer Olympics just happened and watching the winter ones forward leading up to the point uh, in February 2022 when they're going to be the Beijing Winter Olympics. So I'm using this sort of time between the Summer and Winter Olympics, which is shorter than usual because of the coronavirus delay, to uh, just look at all of the Olympic documentaries. And I'll be alternating between winter and summer, so it'll be kind of fun flipping back and forth, not just between the seasons, but these different time period since I'm going backwards with one and forwards with the other. So I've got that all laid out, all the films listed there, and I'll be linking them up as they go up uh, in a week or so. I'm going to put up the first batch, which I've watched most of already, on uh, the first you know summer and winter films that I'm covering. So keep an eye out for that. On uh, YouTube and Vimeo, just one note to make. I've been having a lot of annoying trouble lately with um, copyright takedowns and things on Journey Through Twin Peaks, which was settled years ago. Like I actually spoke on the phone with a CBS lawyer. They reached out to me back in 2014 when the videos first got up to discuss fair use and all of this. And they agreed, you know, we kept them up. They monetized the material. And now I keep getting these flags somehow from CBS. I don't know what the reason is. So anyways, point being that chapter is temporarily down. I'm, uh, appealing the denial i'll keep going with it if necessary there's like a i won't get into all the technicalities of it but you know i'll get that video back up there but in the meantime while it's down i wanted to let people know who are just watching that series for the first time they can jump to that chapter on vimeo it's at 8 39 8 minutes and 39 seconds into like the longer video that i put up on vimeo and i'll link all that below so you don't have to think too much about it you can just click on that link if you were watching the Journey Through Twin Peaks playlist and confused what happened to the uh, chapter on the early episodes, one through three with the Red Room Dream and all of that. So before we get into high and low, uh, I just want to note that I think, <laughs> I mean, this, this film has been relevant to American politics for several decades now, if not longer, given the 2008 pen, um, um crash and the recession that followed. But now that the pandemic has occurred, which occurred after I recorded this episode, it feels even more relevant in, in many ways. So the film is about inequality. It's about somebody living high up in this tower who is affected by somebody living below who's furious and angry at the elite and how they feel screwed over by them. One thing that's interesting about the film, which I discuss, I think, a little more in some feedback that I got, 
than even in the main episode itself is um, there's a, and I should say, you know, this, of course, this episode will contain spoilers for high and low, and I'm going to start some of those now. So proceed with caution. But uh, the character who is um, the, the less well-off character who is, who is like uh, trying to take advantage of the, the higher upper class character He's actually like training as a doctor, so he's a prof- he's a professional. He's in the professions. He's like a white collar individual, educated, and all of that. And he's still feeling this this twinge and this this difficulty getting along in society. And I think that feels relevant uh, to today, where you have a lot of people in professional occupations, a lot of highly educated people. And this is something with the young turning to the left. There's this a lot of them are highly educated often with like several degrees but they're carrying a lot of debt they are they may have a professional job but it doesn't pay well it's very freelance based or there's little benefits and all of this so there's like a whole kind of um phenomenon going on with this that i think is interestingly reflected in this film just with its choice of who the more uh you know impoverished uh figure is like what what he actually does and also it's interesting to watch as the uh, gondo the main character as he kind of falls from his perch that there is no system to back him up he makes a needed sacrifice in the film and there's nothing there to backstop him and that seems very reminiscent of a situation that a lot of like middle class people have found themselves in following the pandemic uh, recession and recovery where uh, there was not an uh, there was not a strong effort made to just backstop everyone. There was like a paycheck protection program, but it was limited. You had to apply for it, and uh, it was it, so a lot of people who had who were less precarious before maybe made it through the '08 crash or were coming back are now find themselves in that situation again. And so, even a character like this, and the interesting thing about him in this film is he is not like the he's i'm sure he's in the one percent of japan he's like kind of a bit of a tycoon but he still is accountable to other people who are even more powerful than him he came up from poverty himself and now he's like falling again because of something he had to do and uh, there's nothing there to kind of backstop or protect even him in that situation so it, it kind of cuts even deeper that analysis and in the wake of a, uh, a an economic situation where that happened to just millions of people where the rug was pulled out from under them because it had to be because of a health situation, a, a national crisis, and they didn't, you know, they they didn't quite get the backup they needed. And even where they did, people are trying to pull it away now. Before there may be, you know, like for example, with the eviction moratorium that just happened, where people are, you know, their, their protection has been lifted, but they're just expected to make up all these months that they couldn't pay the rent now afterwards and then you know there's even landlords caught in this situation where it's like if they're a small landlord now they owe a mortgage so it's like sort of this chain reaction down the line and watching or talking about this film again in that light I think again it feels even more relevant in that sense so sometimes I like to kind of share the political relevance after I have uh, shared the original review because again this was recorded back in 2018 as left of the movies branches off into its own feed I'll be recording mo- almost all uh, new reviews at that point, but I'm still kind of dipping into my archive here. So this three years ago already relevant, even more so now. So here's what I said about high and low at that time, and uh, it'll be followed in the end by a bit of feedback where I get to dig into some of that even more.
揃えたしかしそっちの条件は飲む金をもらう前にちゃんと子供は見せるよいつだ明日どこで焦るな明日の特急第二小玉へ乗れ分かったなそれだけだどこまで行くんだ乗れば分かるよ近藤さん High and low is the story of a businessman, a shoemaker, actually, somebody who came up through the factory and is now an executive and is actually on the cusp of buying almost half the company so that he can take it over. And right as he's on the eve of this sort of corporate triumph, he finds out that his son is kid- has just been kidnapped. In fact, it's just like one scene after the other. Um, it's seamless. He, he, the, he kicks the executives out of his house who want him to side with them. He's got another plan that he's going to use to sabotage them. And instantly he gets that phone call. So it's all very sort of seamlessly integrated, all of the, the narrative, especially in this part of the movie. Like it feels almost continuous. Basically, we don't leave the big, large living room with the picture windows or the wraparound windows on this house on the hill. That he, that he lives in and that the kidnapper's actually looking in on as he calls him and taunts him. We don't leave that room for 55 minutes, if I'm not mistaken. I think we, there is one shot out in the driveway as the executives leave. But essentially, we're in that one space this whole time. And boy, there's just a great tension there. I wouldn't describe it as suspense exactly. Um, it's less about like waiting on pins and needles to see what happens next. It's just having this, just feeling that intensity all around you. It's kind of relentless and it's great. It's just so well done. When I was putting the movie in, I saw, you know, it was two and a half hours and I thought, geez, that's that's much longer than I, I thought it was or I remembered it being or whatever, you know. But that first hour, I wouldn't say it flies by. It You can feel it, but like you're so immersed in that world. You're not thinking, gee, it's been a half hour. It's been an hour or whatever. You're just in that in that world. So what does happen in the film is he ends up finding out that the chauffeur's son has been kidnapped, not his own son. And that opens up this whole moral dilemma. What does he do now? If it was his son, great, he'd get the money that they wanted. And they wanted a lot of money. Um, Basically, what they wanted would have sabotaged his whole plan to take over the company. And then they would have turned on him and he would have been thrown out and everything like that. But you know, when it was his son, he just was going to go with it. And now that he realizes it's not his son, he's just like, well, wait, why am I being blackmailed for somebody else's child? I don't want to pay. And he comes up with all these rationalizations of why he won't pay it, what difference does it make? And of course, the poor chauffeur is there this whole time. It's funny how everybody's always in the room. The kids are in the room listening to cops talk about what hap- what might happen, people dying. They're all together in this space. It's funny because the movie is about stratification, but within this space, there's almost a kind of democracy where everybody's part of the decision-making and part of the drama that's going on. The chauffeur, the cops, the wife, um, the main character, whose name, by the way, is Gondo. So as I said, the first hour of this film takes place all within this one room. And it's amazing. It's a very spacious apartment. And yet at the same time, it's made to feel very oppressive because the curtains are always drawn. He doesn't want to see, he doesn't want the kidnapper 
to be, you know, if he's looking through nearby, which he is, to see that there's cops there. So they're trapped. It's almost like a gilded cage. The way that the compositions are, the characters are arranged within the frame. They're always sort of facing away from each other, raised. The film is called high and low, and even in single shots, you have certain characters more elevated, certain ones lower in the frame. Now, in the second half of the movie, there's more shots around the city in various areas, and I mean, there's just some extraordinary set pieces. There's a scene set in a junkie's alley where there's all these heroin addicts sitting around and it's like something out of Dante's Inferno. These incredible images, very stylized and yet they also feel, well some of them feel more naturalistic than others, but there's a sort of documentary verisimilitude in that second half, which makes an interesting contrast with the very arranged, sober, sharp kind of compositional filmmaking of the first half this was the first time that i'd seen any of high and low other than maybe a quick clip in possibly as long as a decade and as i watched it i realized especially this as the second half as it got to the end i may have never actually seen the second half of this movie Um, i remember at one point watching a long stretch of the beginning but for some reason in my memory, the story went in an entirely different direction. Um, I had actually forgotten that that the character's son was not the one who was kidnapped. Although when that happened, I was like, okay, I do remember this part. I remember that it was actually the chauffeur's son. And then the direction that I thought it went in was they ended up killing the chauffeur's son. And he, out of some feeling of shame for being responsible somehow for the for the chauffeur's son being kidnapped and killed he goes on a on a sort of a quest into the depths of the city to find the kidnapper and nothing like that happens so i'm not sure what i was thinking of although there is a bit of a similarity to stray dog which i uh, only saw recently that's the earlier kurosawa film in which toshiro mufuni loses a gun and he uh, tries to find it. And, you know, as as he's hunting for the person who stole his gun, other people are being killed. The gun is being used in various crimes, so his guilt increases. So maybe in my memory I conflated those two, although, as I said, I only saw Stray Dog recently. So this was an this was kind of an impression I had of high and low for years. So that's, that's very strange. I, I, I have to, like, check my Netflix history and see if I ever saw this move, this full movie before, because... So much of what happened in the second part felt new to me. So I might suggest jumping ahead if you don't want to know what happens, um, because I am going to discuss crucial plot points. As the movie wears on, Gondo breaks down and eventually agrees to give the kidnappers the money they want, which is going to ruin him. And... He throws the money out of a train. There's a great sequence on a train where he's waiting to see why the kidnappers wanted him to board it. It turns out they wanted to throw the money out the window. They're going to show the kid next to the train somewhere. And the cops are really impressed by his sacrifice and dedicated to finding the kidnapper. And as the film goes along, they tighten their dragnet around him. They're examining all the clues. It becomes a, a very different film in this section. It becomes a police procedural, which there was an element of in the first part of the movie, but... Uh, It was more about this sort of moral, psychological, and sociological drama. There's a lot of commentary here on class and capitalism, human relations within that system. Uh, Gondo is, he does lose his job. He is humiliated and driven from the company. 
Um, they do ask him to come back at one point, but his pride won't let him because he knows he won't have the power he would have. He loses his home on the hill when the police come to give the good news that they got his money back. It's too late. Everything's up for auction. And it's an interesting, dramatic decision. There are a lot of easy ways and avenues that Kurosawa could have made him get his redemption there because he becomes a figure that has a lot of public sympathy and the newspapers love him and they all hate the shoe company that is treating him so poorly. The film ends with him face to face with the kidnapper because the kidnapper has been captured and is actually facing the death penalty. He killed a couple of his collaborators and and this is something I'm going to get to in a moment because I think it's important in a way. He ends up killing somebody else in the process of exposing himself to the police. But at the end of the film, the kidnapper is sitting there facing Gondo and trying to tell him how tough he is. And even though it's so clear that he's just a nervous wreck, he's about to die and he has nothing to cling to, nothing to believe in. And there's no sense of triumph in Gondo. There's also no sense of rage. There's just this sense of resignation that seems to come from a very wise, mature place. But but when I say that, I don't mean like he's looking at the kidnapper with a sense of superiority. Um, he seems broken, but he also seems kind of better in a way. I mean, the first half hour of the movie, he's just constantly trying to find a way to, to keep his money and to not help the chauffeur and, and, and his son. And he's full of pride and this lust for power. And even though we can sort of sympathize with that, certainly the people he's conspiring against aren't very sympathetic. Um, you know, at least when it just comes to the business deals. Um, the the person we see at the end of the film, he seems more fully human to me in a way. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. Kurosawa could often make films that had a very pointed argument to make. And you knew what that argument was by the end of the film. I think Kuro is like that. I think Stray Dog to an extent is like that. They're always very complex stories, but they have fairly straightforward points and this one's a little hard to pin down harder to pin down which i found fascinating like i couldn't come away from it just with a quick easy summary of easy explanation for why the characters do the things they do and what that means how that can be straightforward piece of social commentary or something like that it's not a movie that lends itself to that sort of easy reading i think there's a heavily psychological element to it but from an ambiguous uh, times almost obscure angle the killer or the kidnapper, who I guess eventually does become a killer, seems like a character straight out of Dostoevsky for sure. And I'm sure that's no accident. Kurosawa adapted um, The Idiot and I think maybe some other Dostoevsky works and was uh, very much an avowed fan of his. There's certainly quite a bit of Raskolnikov in The Kidnapper. Uh, it's interesting, too, that he talks about shivering in his small home, looking up at Gondo's home up on the hill and feeling jealous and angry and bitter. And the film certainly does give us a vivid social portrait of these people living in the shadow of splendor and, and living these miserable lives themselves. So there is an element of that to the film. But it's interesting that the character is an intern. You know, it looks like he could have a good career ahead of him if he wants to. You know, he's working at the hospital and and all of this, but his his troubles, although there's a social connotation to them, 
they seem to go beyond that social and the economic. There's some there's something more going on here. In wake of the recent mass shooting, it's it's hard not to see him as this uh, prototypical young man with a chip on his shoulder and penchant for uh, basically being sociopathic. One thing though to point out is in a way the police are kind of the heroes of this movie, at least in narrative terms of dramatic terms, I should say, of who were invested in following. Because after the first hour, Gondo becomes a, basically a passive figure. He just mopes about the house and uh the police are the ones out trying to get the killer so it's funny that i remembered it as being as him being this active you know his conscience is awakened by the kidnapping of the chauffeur's son i mean it is in a sense but not it the outcome isn't that he then becomes this heroic figure as sympathetic as the cops seem at a glance we really has to have to ask ourselves what do they accomplish at the end of the film the fact is they want to capture this guy in a way that will implicate him in the deaths of his two collaborators. And the only reason they want to do this, it's not to avenge or, or have justice for those collaborators who I don't think they have much respect for. They were involved in kidnapping as well. And, and, you know, as we'll say, see in a moment that the police don't necessarily have much interest in or respect for addicts. They want him to face capital punishment because they think what he's done to Gondo is so awful, taking away, all of the money and, and all of his accomplishment and now leaving him in debt and a, a sort of a broken man. And okay. I mean, that's, that's one way to look at it. I mean, you could also argue then, well, if that's so horrible, who's putting to death all the people who put, you know, all these other people in society into debt. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite pan out when you try to, when you kind of think it through, but more importantly, that means that they don't arrest him when they have the chance and they set up this whole operation where they kind of entrap him in a sense to go back to the house. And along the way, he takes this woman from the junkies alley and he dopes her up as an experiment. And a part of the reason I'm sure he gets the death penalty is not that he, not just that he killed his collaborators, but that he kills this other woman too. But the police essentially killed her. Um, they set him up to do this. And even if they couldn't have foreseen that, at one point he goes up into the room with her and they're kind of figuring out what's going on. And unless I miss something, they wait for him to leave before they go up to check on her and she's dead. And they're mostly interested in, well, if she's dead, that'll tell us something about. So she's this figure who on the page in theory is a sort of irrelevant side figure that's just used as a guinea pig um, to help them catch him. But it's interesting how much time Kurosawa spends on her flailing about in this alley. We get quite a lot of her visually. And ultimately, at the end of this film, what we're left with is she, now she's dead. Gondo still lost all his money. So there's no actual real-world material restitution for him. This guy's now going to go be put to death. What really have they achieved with this whole method? I feel like what's going on here, among other things, is that this sort of heroic narrative is being staged and slyly subverted. And again, I'm, I'm just amazed that I thought I had seen this. Maybe I even did. And yet, it was so vague to me what, what actually happens in it. So there were a lot of surprises for me in this viewing. And here's some feedback I received that launched into an even longer discussion, not just about the political ramifications of high and low, but also the narrative structure and uh, comparison to the Italian director, Michelangelo Antonioni, who made uh, La Ventura, Blow Up, uh, Zabriskie Point, and other films. I have some feedback from David on high and low, which he chose. He said he was very curious to see what I'd say about high and low structure. As he put it, 
divided in the middle between a restrained, theatrically staged story about Maifune's businessman in his curtain-lined living room and the sprawling explorations of the police as they fan out across the city. He also wrote, I'm curious what you'll say about the depictions of class, wealth, poverty, and how they align with virtue morality. I need to rewatch the film myself, but my recollection is that the film's sympathies are more with the wealthy who carry the weight of the world on their shoulders. But maybe there's more nuance than that? That's a good question. Um, I think in my review I mentioned that I felt like there was some critique of capitalism there, and specifically um, just the sort of human relations that it engenders between Gondo and the other executives. And I don't know that the portrait of him is that flattering. I think eventually he comes through, and, and you know, certainly the villain is not that sympathetic, although, as I said, his, to me, his... Um, class position wasn't entirely clear it seemed like he kind of had a way out of the slum where he was living um but but maybe other factors as well were were motivating him to kind of destroy himself in the effort to take down gondo as well now in terms of having more sympathy for the wealthies if they're sort of carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders and everything like that um that's an interesting point i I didn't quite take it that way. I do think he certainly gives Gondo a lot of humanity. And at the end of the film, we see, well, he's certainly the more mature figure and the wiser figure and the more world-weary figure at that end where they're facing across from each other. But of course, at that end, at that point, he's no longer really a member of the elite. I mean, he may have a chance to come back, but he's sort of a broken man. But it does sort of fit into a pattern of early 60s films where you had, especially in Italy, where neorealism had encouraged a focus on the poor and the working class and the marginal figures in society, now sort of turning their camera towards more privileged classes that sort of don't have to worry about money and are partying all the time, but have this existential angst. You know, Pauline Kael called it the dresses the sick soul of Europe costume party or something in her inimitable way i guess it's interesting to consider if kurosawa is taking some emphasis from this especially because i just keep going back to the comparison with stray dog i think partly because i just watched that so recently i haven't seen that many kurosawa films in recent years but that one i just saw for the first time a few months ago and uh watching that in high and low kind of semi back to back is really eye-opening and the first film my Funi, is really close to the poverty line himself and even though he's become part of the law enforcement establishment he's very low on the totem pole and he's able to empathize with the killer because he knows where he came from um, and in this in high and low in a way he's way up in another stratosphere can't even kind of wrap his head around what's going on and eventually he's dragged down to that level not quite but you know so it's kind of a reverse direction so i would say in contrast i don't know if this answers your question david but for me, in contrast um, to the Italian films of the time, where they're sort of taking neorealism um, in a different, more sort of uh, focused on the wealthy um, direction, I think in, in contrast with that, Kurosawa still seems to be sort of rooted in a dual perspective and in a interest in these marginal, this marginal part of society and the costs that it bears and everything like that. In that sense, I don't think he completely goes over to either a sympathy with or an entire focus on the upper class. And those, of course, sympathy and focus on are not necessarily analogous. Like, you know, Antonioni 
um, may have some compassion for, but I think he's quite critical in a way of, of the figures in his film. Kurosawa's politics are, are kind of interesting. I don't know that much about them, except as I understand, he was fairly liberal, but not like um, a communist or on the left or anything, which Antonioni actually was. And I, I guess I keep coming back to Antonioni because uh, the especially the first part of this movie, what you talked about, that section with the curtained room where the figures are arrayed, that that feels a lot like Antonioni to me, just the arrangement of the characters within the frame. Even though Kurosawa himself, of course, was one of the innovators of using widescreen that way. Nonetheless, I, it, it just there's, there's a kinship there, whichever direction it goes in. And if you want even more thoughts on uh, current politics and all of that, uh, my Patreon episode coming up, is going to have a section on political, uh, but just a political reflections. My first since I think March. I try to do it every now and then. Uh, just look at the survey, the landscape, and talk about. It. Now this is you know stuff that you probably see me say on Twitter and other things. So nothing kind of groundbreaking there, but just my general thoughts. I like to uh, put them in that audio format sometimes. And uh, this will this episode will be linked below, but it's not active yet. Um, I'm still working on it. Uh, it should be active hopefully within a few days because it's already overdue. This is the one that was supposed to come out in July for patrons, but because of Mad Men and some other things, I've been delayed with all of that. So uh, you can click on that when it's ready. Keep checking in on it, hopefully within the week if you're a patron. You can uh, hear more where that came from. And finally, uh, here is a preview of what's coming in the next episode. This one's going to be the first conversation that I've released on this feeds with Andrew Cook, uh, we talked about a film which I think you may recognize from the clip, so I'm just going to let it play out and see if you know what it is. And if not, tune in next week and find out next Wednesday. Oh, 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 oh,